Hey there, Radio Land. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer, and you're tuned into Mountain Talk on WMMT. For this episode, I talked with Matthew Algio, a journalist based in Sarajevo, about his new book, All This Marvelous Potential, Robert Kennedy's 1968 tour of Appalachia, which was published in March 2020. Algio talks about why he wanted to tell this story, what he learned about Appalachia as a researcher from Philadelphia over the course of writing the book, and he tells some stories about some of the folks in eastern Kentucky he got to interview about their memories of RFK's visit in 1968. My name is Matthew Algio, and uh, I am a writer and a freelance journalist. I live in Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia, because my wife is a U.S. Foreign Service officer, and she is posted here right now. And I write nonfiction books. I've written six, uh, all about U.S. history. A lot of them are about politics. And my latest is called All This Marvelous Potential, Robert Kennedy's 1968 Tour of Appalachia. And it came out on March 3rd, and um, I'm really proud of it. Great. Thank you. Um, For listeners who don't know about this book, and I'm assuming most folks won't have read it yet since it's recently released, um, I wonder if you could sort of just give us a, like, brief description of what it is. Sure. Well, in February of 1968, Robert Kennedy, who was then a United States senator from New York, went to eastern Kentucky for two days on a fact-finding trip. He held two uh, Senate subcommittee hearings, a subcommittee on poverty, and he also visited with a lot of local people, uh, elected officials, and uh, just ordinary citizens. Now, the purpose of the trip, I think, was, well, I know, for, for one, Kennedy wanted to go to eastern Kentucky to gauge the progress of the war on poverty. That had begun four years earlier in uh, 1964. Lyndon Johnson announced the war on poverty, and the bill that authorized funding for the war on poverty programs was coming up for renewal. So in early 68, that's one of the reasons that Robert Kennedy went to eastern Kentucky. He wanted to uh, see for himself how the war on poverty was progressing. Uh, There was an ulterior motive, though, I believe, and that was that Kennedy was thinking about running for president at the time. And I think he wanted to give his presidential campaign a a test run of sorts. And he was especially eager to see how his campaign platform would play with, uh, with white voters in eastern Kentucky. Uh, working class white voters, as they are often uh, identified today. And uh, that was another important part of the trip for him. You know, he went to eastern Kentucky. He was pretty liberal by 68, as his campaign was very anti-poverty and anti-war. And so um, he really wanted to test that message, I think. So there were really two reasons that Kennedy went to uh, eastern Kentucky. And the book talks about his trip. And it, of course, has all the basic facts of where he went and what he saw and who he spoke with. But I tried to make it more about the people he met with and the issues that uh, they were dealing with at that time in eastern Kentucky. So I tried to interview people that Kennedy met with at that time. And uh, I also did some research on many of the issues that were prominent in Appalachia at that time. And so I tried to kind of mix this all together into the book. So it's kind of a narrative history of the trip. 
but it's also in a way a narrative history of the issues that faced Eastern Kentucky then, and in some cases still face uh, Eastern Kentucky today, and um, and of the people uh, that Kennedy met with who were working to improve their communities then, and many of them still are. And I'm curious um, how you came to this book project and why you wanted to tell this story. Yeah. Well, like a lot of people, I was really surprised with the election results in uh, November 2016. And of course, after Trump won, there were all these stories about Trump country and, you know, voters in uh, Appalachia especially were uh, signaled out as, as 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 members of this this group, you know, Trump country and pointed out that some of the counties in Appalachia, central Appalachia and eastern Kentucky voted for Trump with margins of 60 to 70 percent. And I had remembered that Kennedy had done this tour, the press like to call it a poverty tour, in February of 68. I, you know, I knew about it. And I was just really fascinated by the fact that, you know, 50 years ago, Robert Kennedy goes to eastern Kentucky on what is essentially a campaign trip and very credibly campaigns as a very liberal candidate. And then in 2016, Donald Trump uh, carries Eastern Kentucky with these big margins as sort of the exact opposite of Bobby Kennedy. So of course, everybody's trying to figure out what happened, what happened. Well, I don't, I'm, I, I'm not a political analyst. I don't know what happened, but I was fascinated just by the fact that this trip had taken place. And so I really wanted to go back and, and look at it and see what happened in 68. And I think people who read the book might be able to, you know, draw their own conclusions. Of course, they can draw their own conclusions, but they'll see similarities between what was going on in 68 and what is going on today that might explain a little bit why Kennedy was so popular then and then Trump is popular now. Hmm. Um. We don't want to give away what's in the book for folks who might want to go out and read it. But I'm also curious if you could say a little bit more about that, about some of the connections that maybe you saw between 68 and 2016 um, in terms of issues. Sure. Um, Well, for one thing, a lot of the issues uh, are the same. There was a great environmental concern in 68. uh, Strip mining was really at its peak and uh, this was one of the major issues facing facing uh, Eastern Kentucky at that time. Um, there was also a lot of, uh, I think, uh, class animosity. And I, I, the, the the biggest thing I would say, like the one thread that you see that connects '68 to today, very directly, is a frustration with government. Um, in 1968, when Kennedy went to Fleming Neon High School, there were students um, actually from Everett's, Kentucky, who went there and unfurled a big banner that said, we we can't eat your fancy promises. And I, I just thought that really encapsulated a lot of the frustration that people had at that time. And you hear a lot of the same explanations for Trump in 2016, that people were just uh, uh, you know, fed up or didn't trust the government. Um, so that in particular is one thread I think you see uh, between now and then. But that's not to say that things haven't changed because they have changed, I think, uh, you know, a lot. I'm not from the area. I'm, I'm originally from Philadelphia, uh, from the East Coast. So this was a huge learning experience for me. And really when I began researching the book, 
you know, I had my own biases, of course. To me, the 60s were Woodstock and the Chicago Convention and San Francisco and, you know, who thinks of Kentucky when you think of the 60s? But then as I began researching the book, I was really blown away. I couldn't believe how crazy things were in eastern Kentucky in the 60s and some really radical things going on uh, in the region at that time. And and that that really... Um, you know that really impressed me. I mean, I think I think a lot of the people who read the book who are who are from the area, these stories will not be new to them. Um, hopefully, I've told them well, and and maybe there's new information, certainly new angles or new interviews. Uh, but I think a lot of people outside the area will really be, um, you know, amazed at, at at the craziness that was in Appalachia at that time. And then I guess. Uh... I kind of want to go back to just more broadly, like, I'm curious for you in your research, what some of the highlights or most kind of interesting moments were, whether it had to do with things you had imagined or not about the region. Um, Just some some moments or some particular people that you talked to or even um, stops along the tour that were particularly like noteworthy to you. Yeah, well, it was it was really uh, interesting and fun because this this book is the 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 book I've written. I don't know how do you say it. That was closest in the past. I mean, I've written books where you know it, it's the 19th century. You know, you're not going to interview anybody. This book was only 50 years ago. There's a lot of people around who were there, and so it was so cool to find people and and to interview them and and get their perspective on things. I talked to a guy in Pippa Passes, uh, Lawrence Baldridge, who's a Baptist minister there, and he was just so fascinating. One of these people that really, I mean, like an American hero, you know, he was performed uh, one of the first uh, interracial marriage ceremonies uh, in eastern Kentucky in 1968, shortly after the Supreme Court struck down the, the bans on those marriages. And um, he is the guy who invited Kennedy to speak at Alice Lloyd College. Uh, Reverend Baldridge was a teacher at Alice Lloyd, taught English in 1968, and he had a speaker program there. And uh, he had had Harry Caudill in. Of course, Harry wrote the wrote Night Comes to the Cumberlands, the, the, the famous uh, uh, history polemic, I guess, that was published in 63. And so Reverend Baldridge thought, well, I'll invite Bobby Kennedy. And so he wrote a letter to Kennedy's office, and it was a very different time because they just wrote back and said, sure, we can do that on you know, the night of February 13th if you're available. Okay, sure. And um, so he, uh, so Kennedy showed up, and, um, and he gave a, a speech there that is just fascinating to listen to. And then again, in one of those great quirks, I asked Reverend Baldridge, I said um, – you know, is there a copy of the speech? Did anybody record it? And he said, oh, yeah, Benny Moore, he has a copy of it. And Benny was also a teacher at Alice Lloyd at that time. He didn't go to see Kennedy that night, but a couple months later, he needed a reel-to-reel recorder for his class. So he went to get the reel-to-reel recorder that was in Cushing Hall, and there was a tape on it. Fortunately, he played the tape, listened to it, and somebody had taped the Kennedy speech, but just left it on the reel-to-reel machine. And so Benny took that home, and uh, that's how we have a copy of the speech. And then I called Benny that night, and he put his 
son on the phone and he put it in Dropbox and I was listening to it that night. I mean, it was crazy. And uh, the, um, the, the the Kennedy speech itself, just, just to go on a, a, a little sidebar here, but the Kennedy speech is so fascinating to listen to because it's so different than the kind of speeches that you would hear today. And, you know, I don't want to canonize Bobby Kennedy. I think he, I think he was a really, you know, decent person for the most part. And, and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, I think he had America's best interest in heart, but when you listen to the speech, he, it's more, most of the speech is him asking questions of the students and, 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 you know, having a dialogue with the students and, uh, Several times he'll ask the students what their opinion is of, you know, should we continue bombing North Vietnam? And the students' hands go up. And and so it's really so different than today's, you know, very stage-managed spectacle event that you would have when a major political figure came into a place like this. Algio sent me a copy of the recording of Robert F. Kennedy's speech at Alice Lloyd College in February 1968. Let's listen to a little bit. Mr. Hayes, Congressman Perkins, and uh, faculty and students, ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to be here. I'm very pleased to see all of you, and I'm uh, very grateful for the hospitality of this uh, college, picking up a couple of strangers, traveling through the evening, and finding a, a meal for them and giving them a room to sleep in. Very grateful for that. I know uh, Congressman Perkins and all of the rest of our traveling group are very grateful to the college for their hospitality and then for the fine meal tonight and for all the excellent service that we received. So I'm uh, very pleased to be here. I think as I look out at all of you, I think back of my own uh, school years and I think of uh, the kind of record that I made there. I think of the... uh, you know, when they give the award at the end of the year for the best Latin scholar and the best scholar in history and the best student that wrote the best essay, used the English in the most proficient way. Well, when I graduated, I received the award as having the fifth best sense of humor in my graduating class. <laughs> so uh, I'm sure very, all of you are very bright and do very, very well. And uh, we'll make commendable records. But even if those of you are not right up at the top, I think, again, on my own, when I finished law school, I went to work at the Department of Justice. And I worked uh, just as an ordinary lawyer and was receiving the lowest possible salary. And that was in 1951. And then I worked very, very hard, and I was diligent, energetic, courageous. (laughs) <laughs> and then 10 years later, I was made Attorney General of the United States. <laughs> so I just wanted to pass on you, if you know the right people and have the right kind of relatives, there's no place for you. <laughs> All kinds of things are possible for you. But I'm very pleased to be here, and I'm just going to talk to you a couple of minutes, and then I thought that maybe if you had any questions uh, that uh, I'd like to hear from you, and then also I'd like to hear your views on things. After introducing himself and making some jokes, Kennedy gave a short speech laying out his vision for change. But he quickly moved into asking and answering questions from the crowd that had gathered. I'd like to, can I ask you uh, four questions and I'll tell you what they are. And 
I'll tell you what the four are, and then I'll ask you to raise your hands, and we'll go back over them. First, how many would be in favor of unilaterally withdrawing from Vietnam? Uh, second, uh, how many would be in favor of increasing the bombing of North Vietnam? And third, uh, how many would be in favor of stopping the bombing to go to the negotiating table? And fourth, how many like uh, would follow what we're doing at the moment? <laughs> okay, thank you. Go ahead. I'd like to ask you what's the relationship between self-determination in uh, South Vietnam and in Appalachia. And for instance, we feel the same struggle, it seems to me, from uh, government coming in and giving sometimes uh, too much aid in the wrong directions yeah. without uh, really getting the people uh, in a position to determine their own destiny. I agree with that. I mean, I think that that's happened in some of our government programs. I think that uh, we have to work closely with the local community and find out what the local people want, not what Washington thinks they want, but what the people in the area feel are the best kind of programs are the programs that are most in their interest. And I don't think we've done enough of that in many of these areas. And I think there has to be people, any of these federal programs that we develop should only be implemented after closely working with the people in the community to find out what they think, what kind of programs they think are worthwhile. And I think too much in the past, we've felt that uh, all of the wisdom was in Washington and we've developed programs and they haven't been in the interests of the people in the locality. But uh, frequently, I might say, that's often, often that's been in, in the past because of either the state government or the, I'm not talking about Kentucky now, I'm just talking in general terms. The state government or the local government hasn't been willing to develop programs themselves or deal with some of these matters themselves. So it's been left to the federal government. And uh, the federal government, as I say, I think has made some mistakes in some of these programs. I would hope that we'd have more of an effort in the future to try to bring it back to the local community and to try to develop programs in, uh, in conjunction with the lo local community and before they're implemented. I was wondering about in the educational part, well, where the teacher's salary is, you know, is often so low that uh, the college graduates are going to another state. Well, of course, uh, I know, I think that's unfortunate. Again, I think of the great wealth that exists in eastern Kentucky, and it seems to me that some of that wealth should be utilized and stay and remain here so that you can pay the teacher's salaries. I mean, you could, this is a... You think of all the wealth that's been taken out of Eastern Kentucky over the period of the last uh, 40 or 50 years, it's astronomical. And yet you think that the, the fact that schools haven't been constructed and the teachers aren't being paid adequate salaries, and there are not the roads and the highways that should be, and there's not the industry that should be. Somebody's taken the money, and uh, there's some, you know, the money's still being taken. And I think that, uh, you know, I'm not telling people what they should do in another part of the country, but I do think that uh, it's obvious, as it must be obvious to all of you, that some of that great wealth should remain with the people of eastern Kentucky and should remain in eastern Kentucky. It seems to me fundamental that that should be true. It shouldn't be going uh, either up to my own state or it shouldn't be going to Pennsylvania and it shouldn't be going to Illinois. It should stay here by the people who produce it and the people who made it possible and the people who live here and desperately need it in their educational system and so many other ways. Yeah. Not getting a little off the foot, but still dealing with population. One of the big concerns in this area is strip mining. This takes a lot of the world's knowledge to take itself and also a lot of beauty in the land. What do you think of any 
Well, it seems to me that uh, the state of Kentucky should be able to deal with this themselves, shouldn't they? I mean, it might be that federal legislation be necessary, but the state of Kentucky could pass laws dealing with strip mining very easily, couldn't they? Well, I mean, it's possible and it's constitutional. <laughs> Let me just ask you a question. I'll ask you a question. Uh, I'll ask you how many of you approve and then how many of you disapprove of strip mining. How many of you approve of strip mining? And how many of you disapprove of strip mining? And how many of you feel that the uh, outsiders have taken and are still, well, have taken the uh, wealth of eastern Kentucky? And how many of you feel that they're still taking the wealth of eastern Kentucky? I didn't, so. <laughs> oh, well, I guess it's a joke. <laughs> See, everybody laughed at the end of it. <laughs> but anyway, go ahead. I shouldn't have said it. <laughs> Yeah, I think that what I mean I can't answer that. I don't know why that factory's down there, to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah, I know, and I think that the world is you know, I'm sure many injustices. It seems to me that there should be more factories. So that wouldn't be an well, issue. How do you Let's get back to Matthew Algio talking about some of the highlights of writing his new book, All This Marvelous Potential. Robert Kennedy's 1968 tour of Appalachia. But anyway, meeting Reverend Baldridge and meeting some of the other people. Bonnie Carroll is a woman. She was a teacher at a one-room schoolhouse uh, near um, Barwick. Um, but she was uh, she was so nice, and we met at her church a couple times. And and you know, I guess Bonnie. I hope she won't mind me saying she's in her 80s now. I mean, you can do the math, but just as as sharp as could be and remembered all the kids in the class. And then she introduced me to a couple of the kids who were at the school at that time. And the school itself is still standing. I think it's, uh, um, yeah, it's, he visited two one-room schoolhouses. One was in Vortex, the other was in Barwick. The one in Barwick is, Barwick is still standing. Uh, it's been abandoned now for probably 40 years uh, it was a it was a library for a while, but it was it was cool to go and and see that schoolhouse like you know in the middle of nowhere, 
on a on a gravel road and just imagine Bobby Kennedy in in that big entourage driving up one day and but to answer your question I guess it was just the the you know the meeting the people who were there who were witnesses to these events and being able to speak with them and and um you know get information like firsthand information and impressions and uh, of course everybody was just so nice yeah, I'm glad you talked about some of the folks that you, you got to interview. Um, and I kind of wanted to ask you about some of the folks local to Eastern Kentucky that you'd been able to meet. Um, well, Steve Kaywood, uh, and he actually lives in Pineville now, but he was a UK law student in 68. And he had become um, um, friends with Carl Perkins, who was the congressman in Eastern Kentucky at that time. And uh, Steve, when he was in law school, used to go to Washington in the summer and lobby for funding for anti-poverty programs. And that's how he got to get to know Carl Perkins. And then when Kennedy made this trip, somehow Steve Kaywood, who was, I don't know, 25 at the time, finagled a seat in Kennedy's car. So it was Kennedy and uh, the state trooper, Louis Nunn, supplied a car and a driver for Kennedy. And then in the back seat, it was Carl Perkins and Steve Kaywood. And so Steve like sat in the back seat of Kennedy's car for two days and had these amazing stories of, of Kennedy just driving along. And if he would see something, he wanted to Steve just tell the driver to stop and get out and talk to people at houses along the road or stop in, you know, in, in markets or, or grocery stores along the road and just talk to people. So, And Steve himself went on to have a career really as a country lawyer much in the mold of Harry Caudle. And uh, and he was just uh, so generous and, and friendly with his time. There was another person that I talk about in the book who is not with us anymore, but his name was Tommy Duff. And he was a high school senior, 17 years old in February of 68. And he was the leader of the youth group in Everett's, the Clover Fork youth group. And so when they went to the hearing at Fleming Neon and Kennedy asked if anyone from that youth group wanted to speak, uh, it was Tommy who went up and uh, and spoke uh, to Kennedy and uh, read an editorial he'd written for the Clover Fork newsletter talking about the conditions in the school. And uh, he ended up getting in a lot of trouble for that. They suspended him from school because of that. Um, but I really wanted to talk to Tommy, obviously. I mean, since he was 17 and 68, he was born, I guess, in, in, in 50 or 51. Uh, but when I did went to look him up online, I found out that he had died in Los Angeles in 1971 and uh, actually committed suicide. And then I started talking to his friends, other people who were in the youth group, um, Margaret uh, Shackelford and Brenda Taylor and and uh, and Jeanette uh, Knowles and and uh, they gave me the story of Tommy, which turned out that Tommy was gay, and you know, growing up gay in Eastern Kentucky in the '60s could not have been very easy. And uh, so I go into that a little bit in the book about what that was like, based on my interviews with uh, with Tommy's friends. And then Tommy moved to Los Angeles, and then uh, met a man there who was a Vietnam vet. And I, and I, I talk a little bit about the you know the scene in L.A. at the time, and contrast that with what there it was a woman like in who testified at a hearing at the one-room schoolhouse in Vortex. And this would have been on the morning of February 13th, 1968. Uh, and her name was Mary Rice Farris. And it turned out she was the only African-American to testify in the two days of hearings that Kennedy held. 
And I met her granddaughters, three of her granddaughters. We met at the library in Berea College, and they brought some information about their grandmother. And she was the most amazing, formidable person you could imagine who grew up in, in Berea. And uh, her, her, her father was a white businessman in town, and her mother was black and unmarried. And, you know, she, she grew up on, in, in difficult circumstances, but really became a leader in her community and, and really a political force. And she ended up working on many uh, uh, war on poverty programs. And there was a shootout in Berea in the summer of 68. This was after the Kennedy visit between there was a uh, National States Rights Party uh, rally at a used car lot in Berea. And National States Rights Party was the George Wallace Party, but it was really a white supremacy party. And they were blaring all their stuff over the loudspeakers. And a group of men who, who lived nearby in the black neighborhood, Town, came and confronted these Klansmen, basically, and there was a shootout. There was a gun battle, a running gun battle in the streets of Berea. In uh, it was uh, Labor Day weekend in 1968, and two people were killed: one man, white, and one black. They're buried practically next to each other in the cemetery today. And uh, so racial tensions were, were were magnified. It was just an, it was it was it was very um, dangerous situation. And Mary Rice Farris came in, and she was one of the people that led the committee that basically oversaw reconciliation efforts in, in the town and gave this amazing speech that her, her granddaughters had a copy of and that I have, I have it in the book. But it was just one of those stories that, you know, I really feel like it needs to be out there. And again, I mean, Mary Rice Farris is like Reverend Baldridge, you know, and Bonnie Carroll. And these are people who really are, they're like heroes, man. Like they're real American patriots in the in the real sense of the word as far as I'm concerned and um, who, who really d- dedicated their lives and in some cases really put their lives on the line um, risk themselves by by going out there and, and engaging in the community in these issues and and uh, and that was really cool yeah discovering people like that was was really amazing well thank you so much for hopping on the phone with me um, to talk about this book oh thank you That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk, where we talked with journalist and historian Matthew Algio about his book, All This Marvelous Potential, Robert Kennedy's 1968 tour of Appalachia. You can find it at Booksellers Online. If you liked what you heard and you'd like to tell a friend to listen to this episode, or you want to listen to some past episodes, you can find them on our website at wmmt.org or download Mountain Talk as a podcast from SoundCloud or Stitcher. Music on this episode features the Dutch Cove String Band with a tune called The Greenville Waltz. That song comes off their album Sycamore Tea, released by Apple Shop's own June Apple Recordings in 1978. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio. And please, wash your hands, Practice safe social distancing and stay healthy at home during these wild times of the coronavirus pandemic. And we truly hope that you have electricity and heat where you are right now. It sure has been wild times lately. Please take good care.